0: Hello, AGS allies and caregivers. You're listening to our new podcast, The Rare Advocates, a caregiver-worthy and rare disease podcast brought to you by a cardi Syndrome Advocacy Association, where we update you with the latest news and conversations around AGS and rare diseases. Before we get started on today's episode, I would like to give a special thanks to Ecamm live who lived, who gifted us this all-in-one live streaming and video production studio. With Ecamm Live, video creation is easy, professional, and fully customizable. If you can think it, you can create it with Ecamm Live. So thank you so, so much again for gifting us this. Also, don't forget to join the conversation. We are now on all social media platforms, so be sure to follow us, subscribe, wherever you prefer the best. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn. Instagram, you name it. So leave a comment and start a conversation with us. We're here to just make things a little bit easier for you. So now we're going to go ahead and get started. And I'm going to introduce my next guest. In today's episode, we will have Patrick Winters, who will be sharing the story of their daughter, Aurelia, who was diagnosed with a cardi syndrome back in January 2019. We'll be talking about the diagnosis, treatment obstacles, and present state. So, let me just bring on Patrick. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing?
1: Hi, it's late here, but I'm I'm doing okay. Had a nice long day. Did a little bit of gardening. And I'm feeling uh, ready to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Ha- you know, taking the time to let me. And all the other listeners learn about your experiences and share your daughter's story. I think it's very, very important. So please tell me a little bit about when you started suspecting that there was something wrong going on with Aurelia.
1: Hmm. Such a complicated question um, because the, the reality is I don't think that we ever really thought there was anything seriously wrong um, until, uh, until she was about a year old. But, um, you know, in retrospect, we we kind of looked back a little bit and we, we realized, you know, um, she didn't start standing up until a little bit later than her brothers, because um, both of our, our boys who are nine and seven now, um, and Ari's gonna be five soon, um, they started walking at like 10 months, 11 months, you know. And so when Ari was like about a year old, we started to wonder, you know, is there something going on? Um, but uh, she always hit the milestones like appropriately. She wasn't early for anything, but she was always kind of on time, you know, or maybe like just at the tail end of when she was supposed to be doing something. Um, but uh, when we thought that there was something wrong, um, I think we were a little bit in denial at first too, because you never imagined uh, something as uh, as significant as this. But. Uh, it was around uh, Christmas time of 2018. Um, we all kind of got sick, and um, you know, we all had this nasty cold and didn't feel very well. Um, and this is all five of us, the whole family. And I remember Christmas morning, like we were all just kind of exhausted and tired, and you know, didn't sleep very well. Um, and over the subsequent few days, when when the rest of us uh, started to feel a little bit better. Um, Ari just didn't really seem to bounce back. She just stayed so tired and, uh, and worn out. And and I, I I don't remember if she still had any cold symptoms or anything, but she just kind of seemed off. And so, uh, we had a, uh, call to the pediatrician, um, who I think, you know, asked to bring her in. Um, and it was at that time that, uh, the pediatrician you know, just kind of took a look at her and said to my wife, Natalie, um, that, you know, she's moving just, you know, a lot slower than the last time I saw her. Like something seems wrong. Um, and I'm going to call, uh, neurology. I think she might've told us that she was going to call neurology and that she'd get back to us and, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to pause for one second and just, just dial back to uh, November of 2018, I think Ari failed a lot of her gross motor assessment stuff, you know, where they ask you, is the kid's a year old? Is the kid doing this? Is the kid doing that? And uh, she had never had any signs. Um, But I think she failed a couple of those. And so, you know, the pediatrician was like, well, maybe she's just going to get to him late or something.
0: So is that why you started seeing a neurologist at that point? No.
1: Oh. No, see that's the thing is even though that that happened, nobody thought that anything was actually wrong, right? There weren't, there was no sign of developmental regression or or anything. Just maybe that there was a slight delay, and so when we got sick at Christmas, and then when we uh, were in front of the the pediatrician in January, it was a little bit more of a, um, like an escalation. Like maybe there is something wrong. Is what the pediatrician started to worry. Right. She looked back at the notes and, you know, um, well we went home and, uh, uh, I think I started looking at some like old uh, videos and stuff from from really just a couple of months ago. Um, we had gone on a vacation in August, you know, and, and uh, Ari was crawling around the floor and sitting up and playing with stuff. And I kind of realized like she can't do that right now. Um, she was still crawling on her knees, like hands and knees. And she would sit in like a, what they call the W shape, um, you know, on her, on her knees kind of. She could still do that. She could still sit up. But she couldn't really sit on her butt, and she couldn't really get in and out of that position. And um, especially with her, you know experiencing this like very weird uh, um, you know difficulty and stuff ar- around this time, um we we started to get like extra nervous. And so the pediatrician called back and said, "You know I spoke with uh, neurology over at Duke University. The person on call really thinks that you should uh, bring her to the emergency room." And, uh, you know, my wife and I looked at each other like, the emergency room, what are you talking about? Like, you know, she's fine. Like, She's crawling in bed with me. Um, uh, but, you know, it was, it was just this very confusing picture and puzzle to put together. And um, we ultimately decided that we would, but it was Sunday. And so we were going to wait until Monday because um, nothing happens on Sunday. It's, it's uh, you know, everybody's on just on call and whatever.
0: So were yeah. Saturdays and Sundays.
1: Um so anyway, we went on Monday. Early Monday morning, Natalie woke up, drove over there, it's like 30 minutes away, um, went to the ER and I showed up with uh, you know, I had written down a list of like things that she couldn't do anymore, you know, and that was when I had started to put the picture together, like something is actually very wrong here. And I was worried about like muscular dystrophy, things that I had heard of before. Um, and so I, I, knew what tests they would run and I was like, you know, very anxiously like waiting for, for these results. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I lose some of the story cause it's like this really terrible memory, but, um, uh, I think it was an MRI. Um, the notes on the MRI were what, uh, really kind of gave us the first inkling that something was wrong and actually Natalie spent the night with Ari there. And, um, I think what happened was a, uh, resident came in and sort of read the notes and noticed that the MRI, MRI report was on in and, um, Natalie said, Oh, what does it say? You know, and I think he made a mistake. He wasn't supposed to show her, um, but she saw, or he read that it said something about, um, suggestion of, uh, possible leukodystrophy and, um, uh, <laughs> it's not not a good feeling. Um, uh, but I, but I was on my way to like meet them. And, uh, and she told me that, and I, I still had like a 20 minute drive on the highway and, uh, um, you know, I'm like trying to drive and I'm volunteers tears. And, um, I, I, uh, it was just such a terrible moment. Um, when we got, when I finally got there, they were taking her in for a lumbar puncture and, um, I think the nurses carried me basically down there because I, I couldn't I like I couldn't see straight I couldn't walk I was like I was a mess. Um, lumbar puncture showed nothing. Um, ultimately, nothing. Um, you know, the we, we wanted to leave and we got discharged. And um, uh, I might be oversharing some of this stuff, but I have like these really like these moments, you know. Um, when they were getting ready to discharge, and the people doing rounds, you know, came over to to say like, "Okay, do you understand like what where you're going and what's happening?" And uh, yeah, I was like sitting outside the room while Natalie was inside the room, and I think I I was like, "Yes, I understand uh, that my daughter is probably dying, and that I'm going to go and make the best of it." Like that, I think I said that, and that's what I thought when I left the hospital. Um, so. I think that was January seventh. I want to say January eighth, something like that. Um, but you know, we're to return, right? Come back in a couple of days for a neurology appointment, and uh, they ordered more tests. And when those tests didn't come back in a few days, they ordered more tests. And um, I was busy in the background at home um, trying to read as much as I can. I think I probably contacted every doctor. That is a part of the global leukodystrophy initiative. <laughs> I think I emailed all of them um, asking questions because we didn't have a proper diagnosis, but you know we had the suggestion of leukodystrophy, and I had read that um, stem cell transplant was uh, you know potential option if done early for a number of them, and that was how I got in touch with uh, Joanne Kersberg, who has been treating my daughter at Duke, and. Uh, maybe stepping forward, but I'll say that, um, Dr. Kurtzberg was really, um, the, the one that, uh, you know, made things happen. Um, so when I talk about like treatment and that struggle, um, she's really been the Ari's, you know, saving grace. And, um, she, Uh, she suggested that we pay out of pocket to rush whole exome sequencing, uh, rather than waiting like nine weeks or however long it was going to take for, you know, the the leukodystrophy panel where they check for specific genes. She was like, you know, if she's showing signs, if if you're going to treat her and it's going to be a stem cell transplant, like we need to move really quickly, you should pay for this. So it cost us $9,000 and we paid to rush it. Um. And, uh, you know, we're still doing additional blood tests. The neurologist is still doing an appointment every week, I think. Um, And, uh, uh, ultimately the genetic report came back, um, I think about two weeks later, I think it was January 24th. So 14 days, you know, like two, three weeks, basically from the moment that we were in the hospital with an MRI to getting an actual diagnosis, um, uh, which was relatively fast, you know, families go through these this really long extended period trying to figure this out and people dropping the ball. And Thankfully, we got to uh, an expert um, and we were really lucky. Um, she's uh, very forward thinking. Um, she works quickly. And, uh, you know, if not for Dr. Kersberg, um, this would have been a very different story. Um, but we get this this diagnosis. Um, and the neurologist printed out some materials and, and said there there was a clinical trial in Philadelphia, or there was. There-
0: let me let me pause for a bit. When you finally heard the diagnosis, how did that make you feel? Because prior to that, building up to that, you said you were reading and trying to you know get there as quickly as possible. But when the day <clears> came <throat> and you actually heard a cardiomyopathy syndrome, how did that make you feel?
1: They're hard questions, but um, you know I I think about this all the time this is always in my mind and i'm here with you because i'm trying to uh you know not be uh, uh not be full of grief but be full of um, motivation so um i've dealt with these feelings and they're still there but but it's okay um it felt terrible uh it felt absolutely terrible um because both with the diagnosis came a, you know a, a quick summary of the disease and what options there were um, you know, and basically it, the description was that there was you know, no treatment um, and that uh, it was described to us as, it, or what I suppose what the doctor said is that it, you know, in the literature it's described as a disease that can is sometimes a once and done kind of thing, like one period of regression. And when it's over, you know, wherever you're left, that's, that's you know you pick up from there and and you hope it's not uh, horrifying right but then at the same time you also read that it's horrifying so you know how do you how do you reconcile those two things and I and I think I just cried I just cried um, and I think Natalie had Ari and she was just like okay you know we we'll, we're we're gonna figure something out we'll 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 get through this whatever we got to do um, <laughs> the doctor said to Natalie. Um, uh, she said something like, uh, you know, you have such grace or you're such a woman of grace, you know, <laughs> and I laugh about it now because, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> what about me? I have no grace. I'm just crying in the corner. Um, but, you know, we, Natalie and I both had our roles to play and um, I knew mine and mine was uh, mine was to not accept. Um, you know, the story that I was told, and it was to go and read and research and figure out what I could. And so.
0: So, you just mentioned, obviously, that you and your wife are, you know, very emotional, alternating with who's a strong one at the moment, I guess, when different doctors come in and tell you different things. Yeah, definitely. But you heard the words, no treatment, right? So, mm-hmm. that's obviously very shocking. But then you hear about, you said, Recommendations to possibly go to Philadelphia. So tell me more about that. What led to that, and how did you hear about Chop?
1: Uh, there's a website, clinicaltrials.gov, um, and uh, I think all of the clinical trials in Europe and the United States they're they're all in this place. Um, they're all registered there, and so you can look them up and you can search by disorder. And pretty much what our doctor handed us was a sheet of paper that was just a screenshot. Like she printed the web page where she had searched for. AGS. And so there was something in Philadelphia. And so she handed me that paper. Um, and that's really all I knew. She didn't know anything about it. There was no information published about it. Um, I don't think she dug very deep. She probably didn't have the time to dig very deep. You know, they really don't have a lot of time to, to spend on these. Um, I know that she tried. Um, but, uh, you know, there was some stuff in the literature in the background, that, um, you know, she didn't present to me. Um, so I, so I contacted chop, uh, probably that evening. Um, I know that she did as well in the background and, uh, you know, I enrolled Ari in, uh, their, you know, research project, um, to collect blood samples. And, uh, and I know the doctor tried to reach out to them to see if there was anything that, that, that we could do to treat her, you know, what information could we get? Um, and it was just a really, I'm going to say we, Knowing what I know now, it was a very awkward time. Um, they were in Philadelphia, so they had they had had they had to stop this compassionate use trial because the medicine was approved like a couple of months before Ari was diagnosed. Um, so they were sort of between where they stopped the trial and where they were going to restart the trial, and so um, you know there wasn't a lot of information. They couldn't, you know, I doubt that they had done a lot of uh uh, you know, deep a deep dive into what was going on with kids that had it. They were monitoring them, but um, you know, they couldn't they couldn't say to my doctor, "Yeah, take this medicine that we're studying and give it to her," you know.
0: That that time frame is very important. Yeah. You you were diagnosed, you hear that there's possibly, you know, a trial going on. You want to enroll, contact chop immediately. But what happens between starting the treatment and trying to enroll? What's the timeline between that? What happens exactly?
1: Right. So she gets the diagnosis January twenty fourth, I believe, um, and I spend that week uh, trying really hard to figure out uh, if if they're going to be starting a new clinical trial, if she can be enrolled in sort of the next phase. Um, and you know, we heard uh, they'll be doing it soon. They'll be doing it soon. Um, our doctor, I think, heard the same, um, but they couldn't really say much about you know, what our options were. Um, so it became clear, I think, about after a week that um, there was going to be no trial that Ari could enroll in, and so that we were going to have to try and do something here. And um, uh, our neurologist here, uh, I think, was open to it, um, but this is a medicine that she knew nothing about. Um, it's a medicine that there was no uh, information to guide her. Um, it could be thought of as a dangerous medicine for a child, which it, it is. Um, and so she tried. Uh, she also talked with the, rheumato- the pediatric rheumatology department there, trying to, trying to see if they would get on board. Um, and really, I don't think that anybody here felt comfortable. And so I kind of uh, kept trying and and couldn't really make any headway. Uh, And I I remember having a call with the doctor, uh, so so maybe like two weeks after the 24th, so I don't know, February 7th or something like that, where she said, you know, we, I'm sorry, but we just can't do this. Like uh, we can't get anybody to do it. So, you know. You go from like diagnosis to the possibility of a treatment and being desperate. And, but then the treatment's inaccessible. And, um, uh, I hung up the phone with her and I just kind of like hung my head. I was at the office. And, uh, I think that same day I met a friend for lunch in a park um, and he was trying to be uplifting and and uh, kind of console me a little bit and he just said something like uh you know you just uh you gotta have faith or keep hope and um for whatever reason because of the kind of person that i am um that made me angry <laughs> So, it would make me um, angry
0: too, because when I get somewhere and it seems like you keeps going lower and lower and lower. I had
1: so many uh, metaphors. I wrote a lot at that time. Like I had uh, kept a blog and I just wrote so much and I had all of these metaphors. But the one that I kept coming back to was like, like I was in this dark hallway, like trying to find an exit and all the doors were locked. And you know, and I kept getting deeper into the darker hallway and the doors kept closing on me. So there was no exit. I had no way to get out. Um, I had no way to get Ari out. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know, that that conversation in the park kind of lit a fire under my ass, and um, I went home that day. Um, and that was when I started uh, trying to escalate as much as I could. And of course, you can't do this in person. It's not like you have an appointment that you can like walk in and like you know yell at everybody or anything like that. but I did it via email. And I tried really hard to, you know, not be overly emotional, but to present the evidence that I could find, um, the information that I knew, the consequences of not doing anything, and um, uh, contacted the chair of pediatrics, the rheumato- all the people in the rheumatology department, the neurologist. Um, and ultimately, it was uh, Dr. Kersberg. I, I hadn't spoken to her in a couple of weeks, because once we had that AGS diagnosis, bone marrow transplant, which is the, her specialty, wasn't an option, um, but I reached back out to her and I said, listen, I, I think that we're having um, sort of a logistical problem here. Uh, I think that this is something that can help my daughter and, uh, you know, it's just a matter of um, confidence or, or knowledge or resources or something, you know, can help us. And uh, I talked to her the next day. Um, uh or maybe it was an email but basically she got she got things moving and um uh ultimately she prescribed um and kind of within a handful of days uh we were at uh duke again with her um doing lots of screening um blood tests uh uh, you know, we made it happen. We made it happen in a couple of days. Um, so anyway, so January 7th is when we were in the hospital. The MRI says could dystrophy, January 24th, we have a diagnosis, um, genetic diagnosis because we rushed genetic testing. Um, and I think it was February 15th was the first day that we gave Ari the pill throughout this whole period. She continued losing skills and, um, I think even after we had a diagnosis, she was still crawling around my sister in law's house. Um, You know, grandparents came to visit because they, you know, heard how horrible this was. And, um, but uh, uh, I think the 27th or something is the last day that she crawled. Um, You know, it's like she was in this decline that just kept steadily happening. Um, And somewhere before we started the treatment, she had started choking on water. Um, and so that was a really freaky thing because she couldn't drink anymore. Um, fortunately, she was still able to nurse. Um, so Natalie kept breastfeeding her for like another year or two to just kind of keep her going. The first, the day after she had started um, she got happy. And uh, uh, remember, she was just on her belly on the floor, like lifting her head up. You know, she not really doing a push-up, but. Uh, you know, it just, like, it switched the next day. And every day after she started that pill, she was going up, right? And so we watched her crashing and crashing and crashing with, like, total desperation. Um, and and uh, admittedly, we kind of threw a Hail Mary um, to get her this medicine because we had absolutely no idea if it was going to help. Um, but every day after that medicine, she went back up um and she's been on it now for uh i think like four years
0: so for those of you who are listening to us you can't see our faces right now but this is a very hard conversation to have um because we have all had similar situations and seeing your child smile again i mean i just heard it in your voice and No words can describe that feeling, that feeling, because you just want them back and you want to hold on to them. And I I heard it in your voice and it just, unfortunately, it's bringing flashbacks. And without that treatment, Mm -hmm. I would be feeling completely different today. And I think that's exactly what we're hearing from you today, from the beginning of the story to now, after the treatment, it's a completely different voice, Patrick, and we can feel it so um you told us you know many doctors the months the timeline and all the thoughts that you put with them the medicine part you know getting the treatment but i know how much is it or how did you actually acquire it did you have insurance help you Uh,
1: i'll i'll talk about how we got it paid for but i but i kind of want to mention that you know that that like getting your child smile back right like week or so before she started that medicine like she was still crashing right and 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 uh, not sleeping at night and there were like three nights in a row where she was just screaming all night and waking up multiple times a night we were pulling our hair out so when we started that medicine oh my god it just like she slept through the night and like everything just got better um and families deal with that for months this was like this was just a handful of weeks for us you know i cannot imagine dealing with this for such a long period of time. So we were very lucky. Um, The doctor that prescribed uh, the medicine has resources and um, we didn't delay. Uh, We were ready to pay for it ourselves. If we had to, Um, she used a grant that she had uh, for helping kids, uh, you know, that couldn't afford medicine to pay for it. So she paid the first month for us. Um, So there was no delay. Right, um, we didn't ask how much it cost. We didn't care. We were going to do everything, um, and uh, um, we got it. I saw the bill. I kind of, I, I kind of went into sticker shock a little bit. Um, it showed up, and I think the bill was was for like eight thousand dollars or something like that for a month's worth. Um, you know, and I freaked. I freaked a little bit. I'm like calling my dad, and I'm like. Can you, can you or the family, can anybody finance this? Yes. Like, how could we possibly, you know, how could we possibly pay for this? I, I really panicked um, because I also knew that, uh, that nobody was getting this medicine uh, paid for by insurance companies, right? Um, and, uh, you know, as it turns out, I'm, I'm fairly certain that my family was the first uh, the first to get private, the first with AGS to get private insurance to pay for this. Um, I was a little bit, I felt a little bit better because I had talked with um, uh, Dr. Rafaela Golbach-Mansky. She is at uh, NIH Children's National. Um, the sort of trial that kind of started this AGS thing with Baricitinib. She she had been the doctor that did that and started that. And she told me that some families were able to get insurance approval. Um, these were kids with other disorders. Um, so I was, you know, I felt a little bit better. But uh, of course it got denied. <laughs> um, and we had one month to get it covered, you know, otherwise I was going to have to start paying for it. So it got denied. Um, uh, and, the, and our doctor was like, oh, don't worry. They always deny this. You know, we'll appeal. We'll talk to them. Um, got denied a second time um and i think you know three weeks at this point had gone by something like that because it's kind of like they there's like even longer before you get the denial you know um so it takes time they send you a letter and um so it's slow and uh after the second denial though um our doctor wrote me an email and she said you know i think it might help for you to write a letter and um uh uh, that was all I needed to hear. Um, you know, I, I was like, "Okay, this I can do." Right? Um, so I, I I actually didn't write it about art at all. I I wrote it about. Um, it was almost like I did a research project. <laughs> I, I I just like took all of the research, um, the background on the disease, the other studies with the single patient studies with jack inhibitors. Um I just I put it all together and I and I produced this narrative that basically was, you know this medicine is working for kids. They're, we're seeing it. Um, there are you know stories about it working. the evidence um, the theory is there. Um, it's been talked about you know ten years ago in the literature that this is a potential treatment um, and, I kind of ended it with, you know, it's a rare disease. Like what's going to happen if you don't pay for this, she's going to cost you millions of dollars. Right. Um, that was kind of the angle that I put at the end was uh, you know, we have to take this differently because this is a rare disorder. The consequences of not treating it are profound um, and the cost of not treating it is even higher. So uh, it's going to cost you more if you don't pay for this medicine um, and uh uh, what I did was I printed the whole thing with all of the references. So I had a stack of like 100 pages of paper and I put it in a big manila envelope and I mailed it to the um, insurance company's headquarters. But ultimately it got, got approved. Um, so we did not have to pay for it out of pocket the second month. And uh, uh, and since then it's been covered, thankfully.
0: So getting approval, finally getting that phone call, because I'm assuming the phone call was before the letter. How did that make you feel? What was the what was the feeling that you had when you got the approval call?
1: You know, I would like to say it made me feel better, but um we <laughs> we were not we still didn't know if this medicine was going to work. I still didn't know what was going to happen to my daughter, right? She just got this diagnosis. Um she's like pretty significantly disabled at this point, um and this is all brand new to me. Um I I kind of have a sense that you know, it can, it can get worse, um, that, uh, an illness or colds can make it worse. So I didn't think about it at all. I, it was, uh, this is just, uh, I still have all of this on my plate at this point. You know, um, there were just so many things that I couldn't, it's not like I could sit back and like feel relief. Um, there was not much information out there about this disease taken every day at a time and hoping that things were going to get better. And that I was going to see, uh, you know, my girl get stronger and, and regain skills. And uh, she has much more slowly than I would have hoped. Um, but uh, that that's what happens when you suffer brain damage. So, you know, this medicine was great. Um, I, I was happy we got it. I was happy the insurance stuff got out of the way. But uh, it, it was also only approved for six months, right? So um, I knew that this was like a battle that we were going to have to revisit. Um, And I thought that that uh, would be more complicated. Um, But uh, I don't know. I was just focused on what's next. What do I do next? How do I help her now? You know, what's the next thing I can do?
0: So, how long has she been taking the Jack inhibitors at this point?
1: Um, So, probably like three years and eight months or something like that. You know, I see those copays. and and the bills and, um, uh, you know, and I deal with that. Um, uh, there there's been so many hiccups with uh, the pharmacy and uh, requesting more information and, you know, having to reauthorize. And like all of this has just been in the background for me because my focus has been on um, keeping my daughter healthy, man. I don't know. I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like this is just stuff for me that is just the background of my life. Um, you know, it's like this extra weight and this extra, burden and concern uh, but it's also not the most important thing right i have to spend so much time and energy and effort dealing with this stuff when i should be spending more time more effort um you know being with my kids and being present with my family and
0: so as a medical parent you're mentioning obviously the phone calls with insurance the phone calls with the pharmacies making the appointments, attending the appointments, doing your homework after the appointments, the studies, yeah. you know, the labs and so forth, and obviously in between all of that, the therapy and then wanting to have some kind of normal normalcy around your house. So what's your one wish, you know, and I say wish because, you know, I say that lightly because we have many wishes and we obviously wish our child was healthy, but our children are not healthy. So what's the one thing that would make things better? better for you and you wish you would hope that you know it's feasible and you hope it would get done
1: I think if I had the financial resources to not have to worry about any of this stuff um, that would uh, make my life much better Um, I don't want to have to think about uh, the cost of this medicine and for the last handful of years um, I've been uh, far too afraid to uh, you know, to consider new opportunities or positions. Um, you know, I've been dealing with a tremendous amount of stress that makes it uh, difficult for me to take on more responsibility at work. But then, you know, it it's just had this effect um, that I, I, if I'm being honest, I'm I'm sure that I've had a a, a lot of lost income um, because I've just not been able to be a professional i've had to be a a dad an advocate and um i really wish that i just had the financial resources to not have to worry about insurance and not have to worry about paying for my daughter's medicine you know that i could focus on what we want to be doing yeah i think it's that simple i can't change the other things you know i can't i can't uh i can't solve Ari's disease i can't uh, I can't change the fact that she's disabled. I can't. Uh, I can't change any of that, and I'm at peace with that. Um, but I, I really wish it wasn't so scary uh, or so complicated to, to, you know, be able to pay for the types of therapy that'll help her uh, gain as as much independence as possible, or for the medicine that you know basically saved her life, and and saved her future. Um, I wish that I just had the resources.
0: Yes, and I I really hope we can collectively get that message out there that we don't have control over a lot of things, but the few things that we can make a difference, we will spend the time that we have trying to make that difference. And getting affordable treatment is huge and not only affordable, but you know, reachable for everybody that needs it. Um, And for those who are listening to us, we don't want to end on such a note. So Patrick, can you please share with us any final thoughts or perhaps um, advice that you could give to those who are listening. It could be parents that are going through something very similar, a rare disease, or those who are newly diagnosed. What kind of uh, words of wisdom can you give, um, um, as we're wrapping up this podcast?
1: I don't give up. Right. Um, there were a lot of, there were a lot of times where, um, it would have been very easy for me to just like sit down and just accept, uh, that whatever was happening was what was going to happen or that this mountain couldn't be climbed or that this problem couldn't be solved or that. You know this medicine uh, is inaccessible to her. Um, there were a lot of times where I wanted to give up, um, but and I know it's hard. It was very hard to not to not give up, but uh, but you got to keep going um, because you don't know. You know that metaphor I used about the doors closing and this you know long dark hallway. Um, Somebody cracked the door open because I kept walking, right? Um, uh, I really think that um, Ari is in as good of a condition as she can be. And um, and I think it's because we we just uh, kept going. Don't give up, keep going, keep looking for new options. Um, and they may be years down the line. Um, and, and that might be the case even for AGS and, and future treatments. You know, we, we look at uh, baritinib as being uh, you know, so, so helpful for us, but we know that we need to find other things too, right? Um, so I, I'm still moving on to the next thing. I wanna be able to move on from this. I want this problem of access and cost uh, to be solved. I want everyone to be able to access this medicine because it's the best option that we have right now. And I want us to be able to move on and focus on the next thing and not be trying to solve this problem.
0: Patrick, I'm at a loss of words with this whole entire podcast and hearing your story. It is, unfortunately, like I said before, giving me flashbacks. But now I want to think about the future. And if Ari or your other kids were to watch this podcast or your wife were to listen to this podcast, what do you want to tell them? Because they're also very, very important people in your life. Can you share with us your final thoughts, but this time towards your family?
1: I think this is a really easy one for me um, I'm proud of them I'm proud of all of them um, this is not uh, this this disease or this disorder has affected my entire family um, you know my kids were all relatively young Ari was a year old uh, Lennox was three and Max was five so these are young kids that are you know living in a home uh, with parents that are having panic attacks and falling apart, um, with a sister uh, that you know something is happening to her that they can't understand. Um, you know, Natalie did and does have a lot of grace. Uh, there, there's still <laughs> a lot of yelling and a lot of fighting in our house uh, because we are still extremely stressed. Um, but I am proud of us collectively as a family for um caring for each other, supporting each other. Um and uh um and it's not just about all of us supporting Ari. Um she's the sweetest. Uh you know, she's able to to speak pretty well now. Um and uh she, you know, like if I, if I look really tired or I had a bad day or something like that, you know, she'll be like, are you okay, dad? You know, like she'll, she's just like, she's very supportive of us as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm proud that we all care for each other and that we have held together as a family because this has been, and will continue to be a very uh, challenging, um, parenting experience and a very challenging sibling experience. And we ask a lot of Ari and, you know she's got to do so much therapy and work and she gets you know blood draws and IVs and it, you know it it's just so hard on everybody, but um, I'm proud of everyone for um, supporting each other and and, and being uh, well like I said, I'm proud of them. We are a family that I am proud of.
0: Thank you so so much for sharing your story with us tonight. I am happy that the listeners got to know you a little bit better, got to know your family, your your experiences, so that they can be encouraged to keep on going and not give up. Um, this is, again, a treatment, not a cure. You have a long way to go, but I'm really thankful that you took time out of your busy schedule to talk to us and share everything with us. And for those who are listening to our podcast or watching our podcast, uh, please join the conversation. Leave any comments for Patrick. He will... Reply to those comments or Patrick, can they reach out to you through Instagram?
1: Yeah, um, so I am rare underscore dadvocate on Instagram. Yeah, you can reach out to me. And actually, I have a uh, page for Ari, um, Astounding Aurelia. You can reach out to me. I promise to reply with memes.
0: Yes, and we'll leave Patrick's information um, down in the first comment in the description box. So one more time, thank you so so much. I appreciate you for being here and we'll talk soon.
1: Thank you, Ben.